Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott, Dr. J.X. Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. And I thank you very much for tuning in. My guest today is Cheryl Cooley, original guitarist and band director of Climax, one of the 1980s most successful R&B funk acts, and to this day, the only all-female band of its kind to score a platinum-selling album. To me, their sound is best, uh, their sound and style is best described perhaps as if Vanity Six had their own instruments rather than having the time play for them. So when it comes to Cheryl, perhaps cool, she is more apt than Coolie. Um, so Cheryl, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Has anyone ever said that? No. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can you can copyright that. I'm thank a fan you. and very excited to have you here today. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and coming to us live from Los Angeles. So um, gonna dig right in with the questions. Okay. So, you know, I have seen you uh, on, a, on a couple of recent interviews, and so I'm going to try to, well, we'll touch on some of that material, but I'm going to try to go off in all different directions and go a little deeper so we get some new material from, from Cheryl today. Oh, okay. It'll be painless, I hope. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, Cheryl, growing up musically and also in the Crenshaw uh, area of Los Angeles, and I got to say, you know, I kind of grew up, I think, close to around the same time. And I was, you know, a, a bin hunter and I was, you know, very deep into the music. And I used to go over there to VIP Records on Crenshaw Boulevard. That was, you know, right. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they had the DJ in the middle and, you know, I'd go in there. And as soon as the records came out, whether it was the Ohio players or whoever, I'd be there on the day they came out, Slave and all that. And uh, that was the place to be. Um, so what was it like growing up and, um, you know, um, let's talk about that and how you first got into music. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, well, my, um, my sister, uh, was married to a jazz musician by the name of Hubert Laws, uh, jazz uh, flautist. And he was on tour with, a, um, a group, uh, by, um, musician by the name of Mongo Santa Maria. And they happened to be touring in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, he, Hubert had, uh, you know, his guitar and his flute at my parents' house. And I always had a little toy guitar. For some reason, every Christmas, my parents would give me a toy guitar. So I tried to tune my little guitar like his guitar and accidentally played the song, theme song from TV called Secret Agent Man. <laughs> and uh, as soon as they heard that, my sister jumped up and said, hey, why don't we get Cheryl some guitar lessons? So they, you know, invested in some private guitar lessons for me. They rented the guitar to see if I was going to like it or not. And I really enjoyed uh, learning, you know, songs that they would teach me off of the radio and stuff like that. So from there, uh, I took music in school, um, junior high, high school. Uh, I learned uh, arranging and composition in high school in theory. And uh, actually even wrote uh, songs for the marching band uh, in the football games and then went on to college and got my degree in commercial music. Wow, well, you know, the Laws, uh, that's quite a uh, kind of legendary musical family. 
did oh, yeah. you, you know, to what extent did you get to uh, interact with them? I mean, I was a big fan of Ronnie Laws and of course, Deborah Laws and Hubert. What was that like? Well, you know, I really didn't get a chance to perform with them. You know, I mean, they're, they're like family, of course, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, my error as far as being in professional music, uh, you know, but I never really got a chance to perform with them. So growing up uh, in the, the Crenshaw area, as I believe um, was yeah. where you did grow up, um, you know, <clears throat> did you experience um, some of the rough times there too, like the LA riots, you know, of course was a huge thing and, and that kind of thing. What was it like growing up in that area in that environment for you? Um, gee, you know, I don't, well, you know, I think the riots were, well, my, my family came from uh, Chicago. We had moved to Chicago when I was, a kid, and I think we kind of missed the whole riots thing uh -huh. by the time we got here. Um, but I, uh, I always had my music and my guitar. I mean, uh, I really kind of just hung out with the kids that want to be in bands. You know, we had the bands growing up. We had the bands like Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, you know, some of the rock bands like I don't know the Rolling Stones or something like that, the Monkees and all of those. So I always gravitated around kids that wanted to be in a band, you know, be in music and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I, growing up in the Crenshaw area for me was very uh, family orientated. You know, my my parents worked near a uh, home, and uh, um, I went to a, uh, a like a, a church day camp uh, every summer that was near my house so I could ride my bike to. <laughs> so, you know, it was really great. It was really great. Um, at the time that I had started attending Crenshaw High, the school had only been open for a couple of years. So, you know, it was a brand new school, a brand new experience. I used to get in that area a lot too because I was a DJ at the time. And so I was always going to resource and impact record pool, which was up there, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but oh, that was yeah. kind of a fun place to be. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of great record stores were there. Uh, you know, many, uh, you know, many great times to you know just see the posters that would be in the stores. You know, and of course yeah. that would get you excited to buy you know a new artist, you know, song or whatever. Great times, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, could you talk to me a little bit about your your first concerts? Um, you know, and who were some of your early inspirations and musical heroes? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, well, my uh, my inspiration, first inspiration was Sly and the Family Stone. When I heard the rhythms and uh, of funk music, I was I was in love. That was it. That was the kind of music that I was just driven to to, to constantly play. Um, so you know the James Brown type rhythms again. The uh, the Sly and the Family Stone, even the group The Monkees, because they had a TV show on, so I would get to see those songs. And uh, it, I was fortunate that because I could, you know, sing and play guitar, a lot of my uh, uh, classroom teachers would allow me to play for the uh, the class. You know, have me come to their class if I wasn't in there. You know, just uh, I would had a great experience playing uh, for different uh, schools and classes and stuff like that. So. It was uh, it was a great time because funk music was in its prime. Um, you know, it was, it, even going into the disco era. I mean, all of that was really inspirational to me uh, in developing my style. Mm -hmm. And so, when did you first perform in front of like you know more than your family? <laughs> well, my first my first concert performance was a talent show in junior high school. 
and it was just me and my guitar singing and I had a drummer playing behind me and it was the first talent show with a big audience probably I don't know a hundred maybe 200 people uh, and you know I felt comfortable doing that I you know wasn't it wasn't odd I just felt that you know when, when I started playing guitar I mean the first thing I said you know I want to be a star I want to pursue this music I want to take it to the you know extreme I just want to just make it big I want you know that was just the thing that as a kid that's what I just I just wanted that I wanted that I knew 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 that that's what I wanted to do and be so my first concert you know though I was nervous it was like that was what I expected to be doing is that correct English <laughs> <laughs> you know I really expected that I my my in my spirit just expected this is what you're supposed to do this is the the path to travel I just knew that that's what I wanted to do well, that's a blessing when that happens, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I'm guessing, did you ever do anything like school dances or those kinds of things? No, I never did any school dances. It's interesting because um, in, in high school, I wound up playing with a, a community jazz band uh, and uh, learning how to, you know, read charts. I mean, the, the uh, conductor, he wrote a lot of original music. So, you know, uh, music charts would be put in front of us and we'd have to start reading it right away. Uh, so I got a lot of uh, uh, experience uh, playing uh, in the, um, uh, actually at that time it was the uh, Communicative Arts uh, Society band and it was, it was a, a community band for high school students uh, in the Compton area. And I was able to, uh, even though I didn't live in Compton, I was still able to play with the band uh, and learn so many uh, arrangement ideas, writing ideas, performance ideas. I was able to, you know, just really uh, expand my high school education into that going on into college. So, uh, Cheryl, let's talk a little bit about the sequence of events surrounding, you know, getting signed um, to a label. Um, you know, were most of the other band members, uh, did you know any of them going in? Were any of them from the Los Angeles areas? And what kind of influences did they bring into the picture? So let's talk about that exciting uh, time when you got signed. Sure, sure. Um, it was uh, it's interesting because I had just grad graduated college uh, about a year, maybe two years, and I was playing in various uh, cover bands, uh, city bands and uh, I was in a rehearsal um, with a, a, a band at the time just you know one of those bands and I saw these girls looking in the window of the rehearsal room and uh, they were kind of you know taking turns looking because the window was only so big and you know I was playing along with the band and all of a sudden they just burst in and said hey you don't want to play with this band you want to come play with our band we have an all-female band and so I was kind of startled and I'm like well, okay, what's the name of the band? Climax. <laughs> so, you know, we exchanged numbers because, of course, it wasn't cell phones at the time. And I don't know, just something about the way, uh, you know, I don't know, their bubbliness, the way they approached it all. I just didn't feel like they were at the level that I was at, so I didn't call. I was like, I'm not going to call them. And the next day, you know, my conscience kept bothering me. Oh, you should have called. At least told them that you weren't coming. So I finally picked up the phone. I said, hey, I'm sorry I missed the first rehearsal. When's your next one? And we're like, oh, it's tomorrow. So when I walked into the rehearsal, 
uh, I wasn't impressed. It was sounded like a garage band. It was, it was a little rough, <laughs> so, um, but they were having fun. Uh, and that's really what gravitated me to come to the next rehearsal and come to the next rehearsal. And then of course I started, you know, writing out songs from the radio and I'd write out charts and I'd pass them out and, you know, they kind of looked kind of odd at them. And, and I said, I thought, okay, they must not be able to read. So, you know, to put it on me, I said, well, maybe I wrote it wrong. Let me show you what I wrote. And they were like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I showed the, the bass player what was what I wrote on the paper. And at the time, we had a, another guitar player, and we hadn't had a keyboard player yet. So we learned uh, cover songs that I would bring to the band. Uh, as time went on, we added a keyboard player, and we added a vocalist. And uh, one day I was telling my, uh, I was working at a bank at the same time, and I was telling my supervisor about this all-girl band I was in. And she said, well, you know, if you give me a demo tape, I'll give it to my uncle. He's a producer for People Bryson and Minnie Riperton, a lot of big names. So I was like, okay, you know, again, I expected that to happen in my life. I just, it was an expectation. So it didn't seem odd, you know, it's like you try to give your demo tape to as many people as possible to try to make it. I mean, that was just the, the mindset at that time. So she took the, the demo tape to her uncle. He was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and so he uh, happened to be uh, having lunch with a lady by the name of Margaret Nash, who was uh, one of the vice presidents at uh, Solar Records. And he gave her the tape and she played it and she loved it. She thought it was great. Uh, she called me and asked if she could come to one of the rehearsals. She came to the rehearsal. She liked what she saw. She brought the president of the company, Dick Griffey, uh, to the rehearsal. And they really signed us within months. Once they saw the, a package of a self-contained uh, all-female band, they signed us to Solar Records within months. So, I mean, the band hadn't even been together a year, and we were already signed to a record label. So it was really a fairy tale type story. But again, I knew that I knew that I knew I expected it. It was just something in my spirit that I just knew was going to happen for me. And uh, once we signed with Solar Records, I mean, we released our first uh, album, first single that I, I wrote the music for called Never Underestimate the Power of a Woman. And that was the first single. And uh, you know, it just went on from there. Solar Records believed in us. They, you know, kept us on. Even if we didn't sell enough records, they still kept kept us signed on to the label, which was great because we went on to actually do um, five albums uh, with them. Well, you know, I, I remember that first song well. I remember getting it, and I was impressed. I, I liked it right away. Uh, Never underestimate the power of a woman. That had a, a serious yeah. groove to it. It was happening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Let's talk about those first couple of records um, before you kind of hit hit it big. Um, you know, what was the creative process like? How did those come together? And just talk to me about what the uh, vibe was like at that time. Sure, sure. Um, we, you know, of course, we were the new kids on the block in a sense. We were the newbies. We were, you know, just learning. So uh, Solar kind of assigned us to uh, two producers from Lakeside. Uh, Stephen Shockley and Otis Stokes, and they took us under our uh, under their wing. You know, the first album they definitely showed us how you know the workings of being in a studio uh, at the time when records had uh, real live strings. You know, that one of the songs uh, they actually hired an orchestra to come in and play the strings and horns behind. 
Um, so they, you know, really ta taught us the ropes of how to really put songs together in the studio. Uh, again, I had kind of experienced that hanging around, uh, you know, Hubert Laws because there was a few times when he would take me to some of his um, uh, rehearsals and recording sessions. Uh, I even had the opportunity to sit through the rehearsal, uh, I think it was the Academy Awards when uh, Quincy Jones conducted it. So I had already kind of been around, you know, how the workings of, you know, putting music together was. So it was really a great experience to see it from the ground up, uh, how a record was really put together, how an album was put together. At that time, they uh, Solar would put four, uh, four songs per side because, you know, vinyl, you know, if you make the, the songs too too many songs, you know, the quality of the, of the sound would start to go down. So we always did about eight songs per vinyl album. Uh, and after the first, again, the first album, Never Underestimate the Power of a Woman, didn't do so well, but they were able to continue on and produce the next album. The next album, uh, again, Stephen Shockley and Otis Stokes wrote a lot of the song, but then we ran into these new producers at the time by the name of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And we were their first outside production uh, from the time, and they produced a song called Wild Girls. Uh, and, you know, it, of course, made a little more noise than uh, the Never Underestimate the Power of a Woman album. But it was a great experience working with Jimmy and Terry. I mean, they showed us another style of production. Uh, and there was uh, in, in the ending of Wild Girls, there's like this wild guitar solo. And I, I didn't feel that I could do it. You know, I was really nervous because these guys had all these great ideas and they were like, oh, you can do it, you can do it. We'll put you in the room with a big Marshall amp. You know, Marshall amps, they're huge. So they put us in the, put me in the booth with a Marshall amp and, and they said, and we'll turn the lights out so nobody can see you. <laughs> so they put me in the room, the amp was loud, the music was loud and, and they turned the lights out and I just, just played my heart out. And they were like, that's what we're looking for. So they really made a turn for my playing in believing that I could do that because once that was successful for me, uh, I just, you know, my, my playing confidence really expanded. And I, I owe that to Jimmy and Terry. They were so uh, responsible for me just taking another turn in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, confidence in my playing. Uh, from there, that album uh, had uh, two songs that they had released, uh, Wild Girls, and I think it was, um, uh, I think it was an, uh, either Girls Be Girls or Offer I Can't Refuse. I almost have to go back and see which one it was. But again, that was another album that had eight songs um, that they had to choose from. Uh, from there, you know, when things really didn't jump off, I guess maybe as we had expected or maybe even as Solar had expected, they still didn't drop us. And there was a... a um, a production to do a third album that was called Girls in the Band, but it never was released. Uh, from there, um, you know, for me personally, I had kind of thought, well, oh, this is not going to work. I had started going on to, you know, doing another regular job, and then they started, you know, putting this album together, and they said, we're going to call it Meeting in the Ladies' Room. Well, the reason why they called it Meeting in the Ladies' Room because Midnight Star had wrote this song for Climax, and the way that happened was uh, one of the guys from Midnight Star was in a club with his girlfriend <laughs> and he uh, saw one of the girls in Climax and she was all excited to see him and ran and over and hugged and kissed him. And the girlfriend was like, well, who is this girl? You know, all over my man. <laughs> so 
so she jumped up from the the table or wherever they were sitting and went to the ladies room and one of the guys from midnight star said that'll be a great title for a song so that's how meeting in the ladies room came about and from that album we uh solar had changed distributors uh to mca and MCA really believed in uh, the idea of an all-female band and was very responsible for uh, our uh, publicity and, and uh, you know, really getting the word out about Climax. And that's the, the album that people really know us from uh, is meeting in the ladies' room. And it was a lot because of uh, MCA's uh, promotion and push behind that record. Wow. Well, so, well, so, so um, <laughs> that was a yeah, lot, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's quite impressive uh, pedigree start with, uh, you know, uh, Shockley and Stokes and Jam and Lewis. Yeah. Uh, what an amazing um, sort of uh, mentorship, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. And it also sounds like maybe, you know, when things didn't take off, you were sort of having maybe your first doubts since you were so yeah. gung-ho from sure. from the get-go that, that it was going to be, you know, you were going to be this musician and all that, and you maybe had some doubts. And then... Um, it's good to hear things turned around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, Solar Records, wow. So to me, I always looked at that as sort of a, a modern-day Motown, or they were at least aspiring to that. You know, they had the stable of acts, and um, so many of them had hits, and they kind of had a, a certain kind of sound. Can you talk to me a little bit about that environment and some of those artists that were in that stable that maybe you met or collaborated with, or what was that like? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, Solar was a small family, but a big family. I mean, they, you know, had, I'm going to guess to make probably somewhere around 10 acts, as opposed to having, you know, some companies have, you know, 50, hundreds, you know. So it was, it was family orientated, you know, and all, all the acts got the right amount of attention, as opposed to being pushed aside. <clears throat> so, uh, they all shared information. That was the one thing that I really um, appreciated being at Solar was, you know, the artists there, the, the producers there, they were not afraid of sharing uh, information or either sharing their experiences, <clears throat> excuse me again, uh, to, you know, help us to develop, help us to develop in a, a touring band, uh, whether that was, you know, ideas in the studio, what to do, what not to do, whether that was ideas on, the performance stage, what works, what doesn't work, uh, or ideas of, you know, actually how to be on tour, how to be on a bus, how to be at the hotel, all of that. I mean, just the whole idea of a musical career, all the artists at Solar were never, uh, ever holding back, <coughs> excuse me, information uh, or, or uh, teaching us uh, things to, uh, you know, be prepared for, the things to work toward using their experience to, you know, say, hey, just in case, this, this, and this. So, I mean, everybody was very encompassing to help us develop. I mean, let's see, you, got, you had uh, Shalimar, you had the Whispers, you had Lakeside, you had uh, Dynasty. Um, the Deagle, uh, Collage. Um, the Whispers yeah. kind of revived their career. Sure, sure. Yeah, it was something else. Um, yeah. So, you know, and... And some of the guys that were there, you mentioned um, the Midnight Star uh, contribution. And I got to tell you, you know, when I was um, spinning records back then, it was a great mix to have me in the ladies' room with Freakazoid. So, uh, you know, yeah, that would really, 
really kill yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, our first tour that we went on was uh, Midnight Star, Shalimar, and Climax. Yeah. And so, you know, also within that stable, you had not only the Callaways, but you also had the uh, Leon Silvers, and you had uh, uh, Babyface and L.A. Reed, and you know, what were some of those uh, guys like? Oh yeah, um, you know, again, they were very uh, supportive in teaching us, you know, the ropes of the studio. Um, I mean, you know, uh, working with uh, Babyface on the song, I still say yes, and. Um, I star uh, Lakeside working with them. Uh, they were always uh, willing to 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 help us to help you know our career to enhance our career. Uh, never uh, you know being uh, you know isolated, but always showing us uh, you know what what would work in the studio and what doesn't. Well, sure. Let's talk um, about you know really breaking the mold, being, you know, an all-female band, playing the instruments, you know, what were the obstacles, what were the preconceptions, the challenges, you know, because when I look back, I think of maybe someone like Taste of Honey, I don't know if that was an influence, but um, there were not many uh, doing that type of thing, unless, you know, you go to the rock world a little bit, or the rock pop world, and you have people like the Go-Go's and the Bangles, um, but really, especially in the R&B side of it, you didn't have what you guys were doing. So can you speak to those challenges, obstacles, and getting past uh, any preconceptions that were out there? Oh, sure. I mean, I think part of the first two albums not being successful uh, was the buying public not being ready for an all-female band. I mean, uh, it just was, you know... An R&B all-female band, I, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, even before we signed the contract and we would try to do showcases, there were times when, you know, the, the club owner would be like, oh, no, you girls, I can't imagine you girls could play. So, you know, a lot of times we would have uh, obstacles that we would, you know, kind of get over. But we were having so much fun and, and we were really determined that those obstacles were, you know, not – devastating and didn't stop us because we wanted we really wanted to make it we really wanted to make an impact we really wanted to play music uh you know i can't say that there were any major catastrophes as far as stopping us i mean because after all that was one of the things that solar records believed in was an all-female band the buying public of course had to be a little more convinced and and thankfully the third album was the one that really clicked and also let me say with the meeting in the ladies room a song that we did off of that album the first song was uh the men all pause and really video is what made it all come together when you know video and uh mtv and vh1 bet uh it was in a, their infancy stage and so we did our first video with the men all pause and i really believe that when the the public saw this all-girl band actually being a band, camaraderie, having fun on stage, then it was more acceptable. Like, oh, I saw that all-girl band on the video. I'm going to go out and get their record. So, I mean, that all tied together. The video helped so much in our career. Uh, then even when we did a Meeting in the Ladies Room album and, and I Miss You, all of that was giving the public something visual as well as audible to put the whole idea of Climax, the all-female band, together for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to uh, bring up MTV Next in the video era because that whole uh, period, uh, you know, when mid '80s, when Michael Jackson and Prince and Bruce Springsteen and MTV was all the rage, and you know, the music business changed quite a bit with the music video. And so I was hoping you could speak to just sort of like what the atmosphere and vibe was like in general in the music industry around that time when when you hit and and what what was it like you know when you got that level of uh you know fame and and acceptance well it's interesting because at the time um it how do i say it um we were developing in the music business as the music business was developing in video <laughs> You know, so it was kind of a hand in hand. Um, so I don't want to say it was expected, but it was a process. It was it was a learning process. It was developing process. Uh, you know, all of it was a process, and it, it was at a time when, again, video was processing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Cassettes and CDs were in their infancy. So we came in at a time when the music, um, how do I say, distribution was also making a change. So we kind of grew up together, I guess you can say. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was it was a great time. It was a great time together. Um, I, I wouldn't have wanted it to happen at any other time. And and you know even the idea of gravitating and accepting an all female band, I think it came at the right time. So often there's pros and cons of when you achieve a certain level of success or fame in the music business. So for you, was it all glory or were there some, you know, sort of downsides? What was the experience like? Well, for me, again, I mean, as a kid, I had a, I had a dream that I would be playing on stage in a band. Uh, it's interesting because in the dream, when I looked at the right side of the stage where the band was, I couldn't see what was different about the band, even though I know there was something different. You know, fast forward 10 years or so from there, I wound up stepping in that dream. I, was, I just felt the whole thing coming alive. And I had to turn and see, well, what was different about, you know, what was it about the dream I couldn't see? And in reality, what I saw was that I was in the all-female band. So I really, I lived my dream. I lived what I expected to do. Uh, I lived my musical talent expression. Uh, I don't know. Some people want to say that I was blessed with. If that's the way you want to put it, that's what I lived. I lived with that gift. So that part of it. I can, I have to say was a very positive experience. Of course, there's always going to be some, you know, human um, resistance or battles, disagreements. And of course, <clears throat> you know, for, for women, there's always those times when things are a little more sensitive than other times. <laughs> so, I mean, you just learn to live with that, but um, there were some downtimes, but the good times, the positive side, it just outshined all of that. It was all part of the process. It was it was all worth it. Um, I mean, as as humans, we're all, always going to have some sort of discrepancies between us. 
whether or not we let those discrepancies destroy us are our choices. And I choose to really look at the whole process as being positive. It was, it was, and it still is a great um, uh, how do I, living, living, and I don't mean living monetarily, but living in the experience itself.